0: Hello everybody and welcome to another edition of the News with Dan where we look at the latest headlines as well as answering some of your questions. I'm going to issue another apology. I'm having this, I don't know what it is, some kind of an allergy attack, a cold, something. Uh, So if I sound congested, it's because I am very much. It feels like my head is in a vice. Uh, It's not COVID. That's all that I know. Uh, The rest is a complete mystery to me. So just in case it sounds like I'm a little sick, I am a little sick, but it's okay because we're going to keep going through the news and we're going to talk about so much that's going on. This new rollout, with HBO Max slash Max, the Cannes Film Festival, as I mentioned your questions, as well as a couple of other news items. So let's roll right into the main story for today, and that is the introduction of Max, which is formerly HBO Max, which was formerly HBO Go slash HBO Now, which was formerly HBO... Boy, the streaming wars are weird, aren't they? Tuesday was the official rollover date for HBO Max to become Max, and the rollout has been marred by some issues, big and small, ever since. The first thing that surprised a lot of people, including me as a Max user, Was that you had to, at least for some users, not just wait for your HBO Max app to convert to Max, but download a completely separate app. Tuesday, when I went to my Apple TV to see if HBO Max had rolled over, I got this prompt that said, Oh, you have to go download this other app now and then sign in there. I really don't understand why they did what they did, uh, but I guess that there was some reasoning behind it, some changes that they made, although it seems like most of the changes were further worse. So that was one thing that kind of had people a little little bit mystified on Tuesday. Then there were the usual bugs and crashes, things that you would expect on a launch day. But again, that's usually what you would expect on an initial launch day. Like for example, when HBO Max launched a couple of years ago, here we have basically a second launch day for the same streaming service with all of those same problems. One thing that looked like a big upgrade for Max was the availability of many more TV shows and movies in 4K resolution, but it turns out that availability is gonna be short-lived unless you wanna shell out a few more dollars. Because yes, while right now, users on the ad-free plan do have access to a lot of 4K shows and movies, they are going to lose that access in a few months unless they upgrade in the near future to the ultimate ad-free tier, keeping in mind that the people that are on the ad-free tier just had their prices increased by a dollar a month earlier this year for the first time since HBO Max was launched. So this is also putting a little bit of people off. You roll out a new feature, you say there's a bunch of new stuff in 4K, but oh, by the way, if you wanna keep access to it, you've gotta pay us more in addition to already paying us more. One of the selling points of Max was that it was marrying Discovery Plus with HBO Max, although whether or not a lot of HBO Max subscribers wanted access to those Discovery Plus shows is another matter. But as has been happening, not just with HBO Max, HBO Max, but also with the other streaming services, there were also some fan-favorite series that did not make the jump to the new service, including the popular Adult Swim series Metalocalypse and Space Ghost Coast to Coast. They were pulled in what seems to be a continuing series of cost-cutting measures, although both series remain available on the Adult Swim website. The new Max interface has also been highly criticized from the scrapping of easy-to-find sidebars that guided users to different hubs in favor of having to scroll down and then navigate side to side, to what some say is also a clunky side-scrolling episode list instead of HBO Max's grid pattern, as well as the alphabetization of the entire service, which lists all movies and programs starting with the word the together under the letter T. But there's one big change to the Max website and app that has transcended just the usual qualms about design and user experience, and has become actual news and it's why I'm doing this story here on the news with Dan and not on streaming charts with Dan. Streaming charts, we usually talk about streaming over there. But this involves the ongoing writer's strike as well as the current director's negotiations with the AMPTP or the group of producers that are going to hopefully find some kind of resolution when it comes to the strike. Under the new Max interface, all of a show or movies, writers, directors, and sometimes even producers are just listed as creators, without delineating what exactly those people did on each show or movie specifically. For example, on Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, you'll find Scorsese there, as well as Jake LaMotta, who wrote the original book, as well as the credited screenwriters and the credited producers. If you look at the credits for The Exorcist, you have director William Friedkin, screenwriter William Peter Blatty, and then William Blatty, who's actually the same person, but because William Peter Blatty wrote the book that The Exorcist was based on, I guess it just decided to credit him twice under two different names. TV shows are an even bigger mess. For example, the hugely important succession episode, Connor's Wedding, which was directed by Mark Mylod and written by Jesse Armstrong, includes every single credited producer on the show in addition to Mark Mylod and Jesse Armstrong, and it's impossible to figure out who did what on that show. And this fondue of creative names has not gone unnoticed by the heads of the two major guilds that are working with producers right now to negotiate the Directors Guild as well as the Producers Guild. Directors Guild President Leslie Linka-Glatter said in a statement, quote, For almost 90 years, the Directors Guild has fought fiercely to protect the credit and recognition deserved by directors for the work they create. Warner Brothers Discovery's unilateral move without notice or consultation to collapse directors, writers, producers, and others into a generic category of creators and their new max rollout while we are in negotiations with them is a grave insult to our members and our union. Writers Guild America West president Meredith Stein said, "Quote: Warner Brothers has lumped writers, directors, and producers into an invented, diminishing category they call creators. This is a credits violation for starters, but worse, it is disrespectful and insulting to the artists that make the films and TV shows that make their corporations billions. This attempt to diminish writers' contribution and importance echoes the message we heard in our negotiations with AMPTP that writers are marginal and essential and should simply accept being paid less and less while our employers' profits go higher and higher. This tone-deaf disregard for writers' importance is what has brought us to where we are today, day 22 of our strike. Now for their part, Max has acknowledged the concerns that have been expressed by the heads of these guilds and the people that, you know, love movies and want people to be credited properly. They released a statement yesterday that said, quote, We agree that the talent behind the content on Max deserve their work to be properly recognized. We will correct the credits, which were altered due to an oversight in the technical transition from HBO Max to Max, and we apologize for this mistake. Now, even if this was just an innocent mistake, it's a pretty big one because if you're Warner Discovery, you're one of the big producers in the middle of negotiations with directors and actors and writers right now looking to avoid even more labor stoppages in the near future, you don't wanna give them any more leverage. You don't want any more bad optics and that's exactly what this is, bad optics. But on top of that, in that statement from Max to say that this was a technical glitch in the transition from HBO Max to Max, No, you don't accidentally, through some kind of a technical glitch, remove the credits from a director and a writer and a producer, and then throw them all into one pool together. There is coding that's done. These apps don't just make themselves, at least not yet. There are human people that type in code that instructs Max how to do things like, for example, list who directed and wrote a movie. So at some point down the line, there was somebody in the design process who made the decision to lump all of the creators together. And even if you say, well, that's just a tech guy, that's just some nerd in glasses he doesn't understand, understand, I will also tell you that this is a very big company. These kinds of things don't go through no filter before they're made publicly. And I can promise you that every single design choice and every single page was reviewed by somebody at Warner Discovery and likely somebody at the HBO Max slash Max hierarchy and approved before things went live. This wasn't just something that happened. This was something that was made by someone and that was approved by somebody else, that is now hugely problematic. Now, am I saying that this was done intentionally as a slap in the face to writers and directors? No, but this was a pretty big mistake that, in their statement, Max is absolutely refusing to own up to. So things aren't really going so well so far for Max slash HBO Max, the artist formerly known as HBO Max. I agree the design is worse in this iteration than it was in the previous one. So you've introduced a new app for a lot of people or at least an updated app that seems like a downgrade from the previous version. They're gonna start upcharging people for things like 4K resolution, which doesn't bode well if you're looking to join them long-term. Well, how long is this feature that I want gonna actually remain at the price point that it is? You've already raised prices again. For people that are fans of HBO and love that prestige content, you now have Dr. Pimple Pop as a suggested show, alongside the latest acclaimed HBO Max or Max original documentary. Things are pretty messy right now with Max, and I get it. If this was their first streaming service, it would make sense. Nearly every streaming service is an absolute shit show on launch date. But here's the thing. HBO Max was already an established and I think pretty technically functional service that they have stripped stuff out of, which to me makes me ask, what the hell are they doing? over there. And if Max slash HBO Max slash Warner Discovery wants to actually win this streaming war and continue to gain a foothold, then they really need to get their act together. Because if this is an example of the new regime and the organization that you can expect from them, then I think that there's going to be a very, very long road ahead for them to be seen as legitimate contenders. Let's move on now to the Cannes Film Festival, one of the most popular and prestigious film festivals in the world. It is in its final days and will be wrapping up this weekend. And as always happens, there have been some critical hits and some critical misfires with some of the most high-profile films that were brought to the festival, including a potential summer blockbuster that may have made a critical error. But let's look first of all at some of the more high-profile films that made their debuts. And there was perhaps none more high-profile than Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flat, Moon and Critical Response has been ecstatic for his latest film. It's over three hours long as it seems every Martin Scorsese film has been in the last 10 years or so and really seems to be establishing itself as a front runner in the 2023-24 awards season race including for actress Lily Gladstone. She's being set up as an early Oscar front runner for perhaps best supporting actress. Killers of the Flower Moon is a joint venture between Paramount and and Apple TV Plus. It's kind of a strange bedfellow situation here. It's already been guaranteed a theatrical release. It's gonna be in a limited engagement in October. It will then go to a wide engagement, and it will then at some point go to Apple TV Plus. But this does seem to be as advertised, and Killers of the Flower Moon is a name that you are going to hear again this fall and probably going into the winter and awards season. Another film that's gotten a lot of buzz is May December from director Todd Haynes. It's his first narrative film since 2019's Dark Waters. The movie stars Natalie Portman as an actress who's studying Julianne Moore, who's married to a much younger man, played by Charles Melton, in order to play her in a movie. And of course, complications ensue. Netflix already has distribution rights to May December and will be releasing it later this year. And if the critical buzz holds, then we could see some pushes, especially in the acting categories for this film later in the year. Wes Anderson's latest film Asteroid City has gotten positive reviews thus far. It's going to be opening on June 16th in limited release against The Flash and Elemental and then we'll be expanding starting the next weekend. I'm always a fan of a new Wes Anderson film and it looks like this is pretty much right down the middle what you would expect from him. They're not ecstatic reviews but they are positive reviews and that's good enough for me to stay excited. A couple of international films that have really gotten some buzz. One of them is The Zone of Interest, which is from Jonathan Glazer, whose last film was Under the Skin. The movie does sound like a downer. It's about a Nazi officer who lives with his family just outside the Auschwitz concentration camp. And the basic pitch for the movie seems to be the everyday nature of true monstrosities and kind of a meditation on that theme, A24 already has rights to distribute the film. This could be one of those things that is a sleeper award season hit. The reviews have been pretty ecstatic coming out of the festival. Also getting great reviews is a film called Monster, which is from Japanese film director Koreda Hirokazu. He also did the film Shoplifter and Broker. It's about a mystery involving a group of schoolchildren. We could perhaps see this in the best international film race. There's a familiar name in what could eventually be the best live action short race, and that's director Pedro Almodovar, who's made a short called Strange Way of Life. It's a 30-minute film starring Ethan Hawke and Pedro Pascal as two former lovers in the Old West. The Oscars would love nothing more than to nominate a filmmaker like Pedro Almodovar in the Shorts category, so keep an eye out on that one. And another director with some Oscar prestige is Steve McQueen, whose film 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture. He's made his debut as a documentarian in a film called Occupied City, which is about the occupation of Amsterdam by the Nazis. Some reviews have been positive to Mixed, but the positive ones have been very positive, so this is a movie to keep an eye on when it comes to the documentary race at the end of the year. But Cannes isn't just a forum to debut potential award winners. It is also a place where many studios bring big Hollywood blockbusters to premiere on the world stage. And I'm going to talk about a very big Hollywood blockbuster that's premiering here in the US in about a month, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. So if you don't want to know about the initial critical reaction to Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, then you should probably go down in the description and jump ahead to the next topic, because I am going to talk about early reviews, and I've made the mistake before of not mentioning that I'm going to talk about early reviews, because some people consider that a spoiler. So final warning, I will be going into the early reviews for the latest Indiana Jones film right now. Usually when you debut a movie this early, it means that you have a lot of faith in it and that you are confident that the movie is going to get good reviews so you can ride a wave of good buzz into theaters. Well, the exact opposite has happened with Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny because early reviews coming out of Cannes were not overly positive. The film has a 50% score right now on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.8. It also has a score in the 50s on Metacritic, and it should be noted that the reviews for this movie have not been aggressively bad, or at least not the the vast majority of them, but they have been decidedly mixed, and the general consensus from this first batch of critics reviewing the film is that it is mediocre, that it doesn't capture the original magic of the Indiana Jones films, and that maybe it would have been best to just leave well enough alone. Now, I'm going to wait until I see the film to judge for myself, but that's not how a lot of other people have reacted because there is a large contingent of the internet that generally hates Lucasfilm, it hates Kathleen Kennedy, and has been rooting against this film for months now. This is just adding fuel to that fire, and it really doesn't help Indiana Jones at all in a very crowded box office season. At best, You're going to have it sitting there with a rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes for weeks until you show it to more critics, and that's with the hope. That the other critics that you show it to later are going to have a more positive response than that first batch that you showed it to back at the Cannes Film Festival. It really does seem like an unforced error here by Disney. Obviously, they were confident in the film. You have James Mangold attached. You've got Harrison Ford coming back as Indiana Jones. Internally, they must have thought that this was going to be a very well-received film, but that has not been the case, and so this could have a big impact on the summer box office season because if bad word of mouth gets out about the film this early, it's going to be a little tough to overcome that bad buzz. So this was, I think, in retrospect, a move that Disney maybe wished that they hadn't made, because now this movie is just going to sit there for a while with not great buzz surrounding it. We've got a lot more to get to, but before we do, I want to thank the sponsors for this week's show. Today's show is brought to you by Collective. If you're running your own business like I do, then you know that it's a lot of fun, the freedom, the adventure, the flexibility. But with all that comes lots of other stuff that's not as fun, like paperwork, accounting, and taxes. If you wanna focus on your passion and not the paperwork, then Collective is something that you should know about because it is the all-in-one financial solution for freelancers, contractors, and self-employed entrepreneurs. Collective handles all of your corporation formation and compliance work, taxes, bookkeeping, accounting, even payroll. If you've done business this year, you have until June 30th to make an S Corp election, which means Collective can still save you thousands of dollars in taxes. And Collective members save on average $10,000 per year with this structure, making Collective the membership that easily pays for itself and then some. So act before June 30th to save potentially thousands of dollars in taxes this year. Go to collective.com and have someone who knows what they're doing handle your setup, accounting, bookkeeping, and taxes. That's collective.com. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the makers of AG1. We are coming up on Memorial Day weekend, the official kickoff of summer, which means the pool, vacations, mowing the lawn, all that fun stuff. And that also means it's more important than ever to make sure that you're giving your body what it needs. I take AG1 every day when I do my breakfast shake, and it makes me feel like I'm covering my nutritional basis and just starting my day off right. It's really been helping me with improved digestion and gut health, a big focus of mine. But it's also great to know that I'm giving my body everything it needs to get through the day, whether I'm hanging out by the pool or, more likely, making a video. AG1 is one scoop of powder mixed with water once a day, making it easy to live your best life. And each scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients that are delivered right to me every month, so it's been super easy to make it a daily habit. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com Dan. That's athleticgreens.com Dan to check it out. One director that's been a favorite of the Cannes Film Festival in years past and has headed the jury before at Cannes is Quentin Tarantino, and he made a very unexpected announcement regarding one of his fictional characters, which is that Rick Dalton, the man who was the main character of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, played by Leonardo DiCaprio in that film, apparently in the fictional world that Quentin Tarantino inhabits, which is now colliding with this world, passed away last week at the age of 90. Taking things a step further, Tarantino turned the last episode of his Video Archives podcast, which he does with Roger Avery, into an in-memoriam episode for Rick Dalton, disclosing all of these details about his past, including that he was turned down for the role of Gary, the leader of the Arctic Research Station in John Carpenter's The Thing, and that Dalton had a hit action franchise in the 1980s with a group of films called The Fireman, which launched a late career direct-to-video action renaissance for the actor. And of course, Tarantino also claims to met Dalton himself back in the 1990s. It should be noted that Tarantino said a while ago that he was writing a book called The Films of Rick Dalton, which would basically be a faux retrospective on Dalton's career, so maybe this is a tie-in to the imminent release of that book. We don't really know yet. I have to say, though, I I read the novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, And to call it a novelization of the film would be a bit generous, because I would say 30-40% to of the story, or maybe even more, was literally the backstory of the TV show Lancer. Lancer is the show that Leonardo DiCaprio had the bad guy role in and couldn't remember his lines, it was one of my favorite parts of the movie. But when I say it was the backstory of the show Lancer, I don't mean like Rick Dalton being cast as the bad guy in Lancer, I mean, the actual, like, in universe plot of Lancer, who Lancer was, his family history, who his two sons were. And I mean, chapter after chapter, page after page of this. And listen, If I had bought the book Lancer, I would have loved to have heard all this backstory, but I was a bit disappointed because I bought the book Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it was kind of an old switcheroo to have so much Lancer in there and barely any mention of the climactic event in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is, of course, the invasion of the Manson family and all the craziness that happens there. Having said that, I think it is kind of fun to do this retrospective about Rick Dalton, and I'll probably read the Rick Dalton book if he decides to write it, but I hope he doesn't indulge himself too much, because that has been a problem with Tarantino, in my opinion, in the past. A little bit is great, too much can be too much of a good thing. So from fake obituaries, which are all in real fun, sadly, I did want to also transition to a couple of actual people who have passed away here in the last couple of days. I know I don't do this as much on the channel since these shows aren't exactly every week on the dot, but I I couldn't let the show go, go by without mentioning both of these names. The first is Tina Turner, who, I mean, listen, we could do a whole show here just about her musical career, but kind of confining it to the world of movies and TV. Her songs have been featured in countless movies, and tv shows she also appeared in movies including tommy last action hero and perhaps her most memorable role as auntie entity in mad max beyond thunderdome tina turner's life also inspired the film what's love got to do with it which generated oscar nominations for angela bassett and laurence fishburne and she was the artist for the theme to goldeneye pierce brosnan's first james bond outing and as a performer Tina Turner was electrifying. If you haven't seen her perform, do yourself a favor. Go out on YouTube or wherever else find concert clips of tina turner from the 60s 70s 80s going into the 90s she was one of the best performers of all time her music was incredible she helped to revolutionize the music industry and she overcame so much in her life to become the person that she was truly she was a -a one-of-a-kind icon if you're not familiar with her and her work then you are in for a treat also a shocking death just a couple of days ago Actor Ray Stevenson, who was so versatile that he was probably known to many different crowds, for the premium cable TV crowd for his roles in HBO's Rome and the Showtime series Dexter, to the Marvel Comics crowd as the Punisher in Punisher Warzone, as well as Volstag in the Thor films, and to Cinephiles as an actor in movies ranging from the Book of Eli, the Divergent series, last year's RRR, G.I. Joe Retaliation, the other guys. He also did voices in the Star Wars franchise. He had an upcoming role in the ahsoka series ray stevenson really was one of those actors that you may not recognize instantly when you saw him on screen because he was so versatile and could change his appearance and could change his performance you could not buttonhole or pigeonhole him you didn't know exactly what kind of character he was going to play but you knew that that character was going to be interesting so two dynamic and versatile performers that we've lost just in the past couple of days tina turner and ray stevenson and as always my thoughts go out to their friends family and fans. So let's wrap up the show by taking your questions. And as always, I invite you to leave any questions you might have for me in the comments with the hashtag AskDan, that hashtag's important, because that's how I go through and find them. And we had some great questions that were sent in this week. The first one is from Taha Kambadi, who says, would you consider making a behind-the-scenes episode for Charts with Dan, even a live stream? I'm always fascinated by how well-edited and well-produced those episodes are, and in such a short amount of time. Well, thank you for that compliment, i guess i could make one of those but it would be very boring because it is literally hours of me just sitting at a computer usually either with my ipad on the table or i've got a double screen at my editing bay just going back and forth or waiting for final numbers to come in or doing research on previous box office weekends so it would be an intensely uninteresting behind the scenes episode um but i thank you for all of your compliments on it it is really my favorite thing to do here on the channel, which is why I spend such a ridiculous amount of time on it. Tim878787 says, Hey Dan, I've loved your channel from the very beginning. Do you do all the work, writing, editing, so on yourself, or do you have people who do part of this work for you? Well, as far as the physical work, No. Um, I write everything I edit everything I'm here uh, in the studio myself uh, Mara is a wonderful sounding board and she will help me crack up you know something that I'm trying to figure out or you know we'll talk through a movie or she often will sit and watch movies good and bad with me and you know we'll talk through our thoughts and she can help me kind of sort my stuff uh, but as far as like the, the editing etc right now that's all me which is why you know I, I get the feedback so many times people also see leave comments like Dan you look so tired you look so t- Tired. well yeah it's because it's a lot of work you know and so you know if i'm trying to work ahead or if i'm leaving or if i've got to catch up it is a very demanding job but it's also a job that i love very much obviously in the long run i would love to get to the level where i could perhaps farm out some of that work to somebody else but the other thing is i want to make sure that if i'm bringing somebody on board as an editor myself particularly I know how hard that work is. I want to be able to pay them what they're worth. I don't want to just pay somebody a fraction of what you should be paying an editor. So it would probably be a little bit longer than uh, perhaps if I was willing to pay less. Uh, But I want to get in the position to have an editor who I could pay the actual value of an editor, which is invaluable. I think that editors are, I mean, there are a lot of important jobs, but editors ultimately are the people that piece all of these different things together. Corey Wooten says, I've really enjoyed your Sundance coverage the last couple years. Would you consider covering other film festivals in the future? Since it's near your market, relatively speaking, I would be interested in seeing you attend Fantastic Fest in Austin, Texas this September. Absolutely. Covering a film festival has long been on my list of things that I've wanted to do. Uh, Virtual Sundance has been so much to cover. I would love to go to Sundance myself someday. We were just talking about the Cannes Film Festival. I mean, that's number one, to be able to go to Cannes and actually cover... these different premieres and see these other films Uh, and even things like fantastic fest i would love to do south by southwest i would love to do although i will have to say that there are a lot of festivals there was one in particular that i was trying to apply to uh, for press that on their site said online press need not apply you don't count Uh, traditional outlets only which i thought was kind of backwards considering that this was one of the more let's say hip festivals Uh, it was a weird policy for them to have Um, But even given, uh, you know, the the ability to cover as a member of the press, the other thing just financially is that it is a big investment to cover a film festival. You know, I don't work for an outlet that is going to cover travel expenses or is going to cover the expense to buy a pass or cover lodging, etc. So it's also at a point where I have to be able to make the financial investment to go and cover one of these festivals and say like, well, how much would my coverage generate? Definitely, probably not enough to cover the cost of traveling. So how much can I afford to kind of invest in myself and invest in that coverage? And, uh, you know, it's not a small number. So I absolutely want to do that. I will do that someday, even if I have to save up for two or three years to do it. And uh, I look forward to it. Mark M says, would you ever consider trying to start up movie fights again with the Screen Junkies folks? I would absolutely do that. I would love to do that. Um, You know, if I was going to be regular, then it would have to be virtual because I don't live in Los Angeles. Anymore, uh, but I love doing movie fights. Uh, you know, we we stopped doing it for various reasons, um, but I, I would absolutely. Start up movie fights in a second, if they asked, um, or, or you know, try to work out some kind of an arrangement or something like that. But, you know, things there also have taken a bit of a different direction. Their priorities, rightly, uh, are in other places. I mean, if you look at what fandom has done and the, the acquisitions, etc., they are growing as a company. And, you know, what we used to do at Screen Junkies is a little bit more on the back burner for them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, 100%, if they asked, I would do it in a heartbeat. And finally, this is a question from Rev, who says, You are a film reviewer and film YouTuber in general that I tend to hold in high regard compared to a lot of other reviewers, not necessarily because of your opinions and me agreeing with them, but more so in how you try your best to convey them either as objectively or empathetically as possible. When you're saying something you know is objective, you make that clear. When you say something that is subjective, you also make it clear that this is your own personal opinion. All this and you execute your takes with mostly a rather empathetic and understanding tone of voice and reasoning. My question for you is this. Do you actually have your own personal standard when it comes to how film reviewers should go about their work? Of course, people can have their own unique voices and styles of film criticism, but I have seen time and time again film reviewers who are overly angry or unnecessarily cruel towards certain films. This includes their tone of voice. The worst is when I see people focus less on the film and more on the people making them outright making hateful comments that at times can lead to misogyny, racism, homophobia, etc. In a way, I'm asking, if you had the influence to create an ethical standard in film reviews, how do you think it would look like? Uh, Well, thank you, first of all, for those compliments. That impression that you get as far as my criticism is what I'm going for, which is that I'm giving my opinion, uh, but I'm also not here telling you that it is the objective truth. Uh, I'm just explaining how I feel And when it comes to, you know, some kind of an ethical standard, you know, it's a tricky situation because, you know, who am I to sit here and say, well, this is what a film critic should be or should say or should do or shouldn't do. In general terms, though, I I think that if somebody wants to say they are a legitimate film critic, then the one thing that I think you have to have is good faith, meaning that you don't go into a film with your opinion already set or you don't go into a film saying like, well, I'm going to hate this for my channel. Because that's my brand, so I have to hate it. So I'm going to go into the film looking for things to hate for my channel so that I can scream and yell about them. I've screamed and yelled about movies, multiple Transformers films. But I don't go into those films saying, I'm going to go in looking for this thing, this thing, this thing that Michael Bay does so that I can be angry because that's my brand. It's just how those films hit me. So you can be passionate about film, you can be angry about film, but I think the thing that if you want to call yourself a film critic that you have to have is a good faith intention to genuinely give that film a shot, good or bad, love or hate, you have to actually open yourself up to the possibility of what that film has in store for you, and that's what I have with every movie. Some people say like uh, with with the latest Fast X movie, for example. Oh, well, he's hated every other film in the Fast franchise. Of course, he didn't like this film. I went into Fast X with an open mind and I said in my review for the first 45 minutes or so. I was having a great time. I was digging the hell out of that movie. I think that it went off the rails after that, but I sat there for that first, you know, hour ish and was like, could this actually be a legitimately enjoyable Fast movie for me? I liked Fast Five a lot. I enjoyed Furious Seven. I want things to be good. I don't want to sit in a movie for two two hours, two and a half, three hours, miserable and hating the experience. I never want that. I want to love every movie. It's just not how it works out sometimes. But that to me is what a critic is. It's somebody who has a passion for film or film criticism, but hopefully both, and who is willing to walk in with a truly undecided mind and then share their open and honest and true criticism. The other stuff, the more agenda-led stuff, is pretty easy to spot. There are some channels that you can go out there and find. If Brie Larson's in the movie in any way, shape, or form, then you can guarantee that on that channel around the time that movie comes out, you're gonna have five or six or 10 or 15 videos about how Brie Larson is the worst actress in the world and this movie's garbage, et cetera, et cetera. Or it's a good film, but you know, in spite of her because she sucks and she hated everything, Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm. There's certain channels, you look at those channels, you can say, okay, well, anything that Lucasfilm is involved in, you're gonna have five, 10 or 15 videos, et cetera, because that's the brand. That's what people expect. That's what works for them. That's what clicks for them. That is what people come to their channel to see. So any ethical standard that I would create to be a film critic would also be the same for a film lover, which is that if you truly care about movies, then you're going to walk into every movie open to the possibility that it's going to be great. Or maybe it's going to suck, but don't go in saying, well, this is how I think I have to think in order to please my audience. So I hope that made sense, and you know, listen, that's just one guy's opinion. Thank you so much to everybody who sent in questions for this week's Ask Dan segment, and thank you to everybody who watched all the way to the end. If you like what you see, be sure to hit that subscribe button, share this video, and also if you're a subscriber, hit that bell uh, so that you're notified when I put new videos out. Tomorrow, I will have, probably maybe late tonight, but probably tomorrow, I will have my review of the latest Disney live-action remake, The Little Mermaid, speaking of movies that I'm walking in with an open mind. Also, later this weekend, I'm going to do a new ranked video of the Disney live-action remakes themselves with The Little Mermaid Incorporated as far as my least favorite two favorite films in that little mini genre inside of Disney, as well as other stuff, streaming charts, charts with Dan next week to talk about the Memorial Day box office and so much more. Thank you so much for watching and thanks for spending part of your day here with me. Until next time, stay safe and I'll see you then. Bye.